Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier, thank you for coming on the program. And let me just say this. I can't think of a job, and I'm not used to buttering up people. I don't do that. I've known you for a lot of years. I can't think of a more difficult job than being the political job, than being the Premier of Alberta, given all of the economic challenges that you have, COVID, and dealing with Mr. Trudeau. I wouldn't want your job, sir. <laughs> well, boy, these are tough times. There's no doubt about it. There was a day in mid-April when... <laughs> Uh, my finance minister informed me we hadn't been able to sell a provincial bond for five weeks, and um, our oil was selling at minus $30 on the future market, uh, and a whole bunch of other things were going wrong. And I thought this might be the toughest moment in this job since the province defaulted in, in the mid-1930s. But the good news, Roy, is that Albertans are amazingly resilient. Uh, they're tough. Uh, there is a just irrepressible entrepreneurial culture in this province, and I think we've seen it in our COVID response. And so uh, I, as, as difficult as it is, I truly, truly believe, and what gets me out of bed in the morning is this belief that, that our best days do lie ahead. Some difficult months yet ahead, but uh, beyond that, I, I believe uh, the future is bright. Premier, talk to us about the emergency measures that you introduced. It's the first weekend for them. And uh, how Albertans are reacting, and then let's also build into this, please, the idea of compulsory vaccination. Yes. So first of all, Roy, we are concerned about the, the recent spike in uh, COVID-19 in Alberta. Uh, our goal has always been uh, to uh, manage and control the spread so that it doesn't overwhelm our health care system while minimizing damage to our broader a society to the broader social and economic health, mental and emotional, and physical health. By which I'm so there's so many considerations. I know every government's going through this, but as you pointed out, Alberta is hit harder economically. That has to factor into our decision making. Um, we've done very well for the. We did very well in the first eight of the last nine months of COVID. But as I say, this month there has definitely been a spike here, like elsewhere. And that's why we felt uh, in order to avoid a situation where we have to engage in widespread cancellation of uh, surgeries and non-urgent hospital care, uh, in order to ensure we have capacity with our healthcare, our great healthcare uh, frontline personnel, uh, we've had to bring in uh, more stringent measures, strong, but we think balanced. And the, and the main thing is a complete ban on indoor social activity. Uh, our pretty robust contact tracing, um, which admittedly it's it's overwhelmed in the last three weeks or so, but for the first eight and a half months, very strong contact tracing points to indoor socializing, especially at home, as being by far the single largest vector of COVID transmission at about 40% of traceable cases. And, and I know a lot of people, like, they say, well, why, why do you, can you still go to a, with your family, only your household, to a restaurant in Alberta, maximum table of six, all sorts of uh, protocols. Why can you do that? But you're worried about having, um, you know, friends over at home. The answer, the point is, when you're at home, people let down their guard. People aren't wearing a mask in their living room. They're not frequently sanitizing. They're not sitting two meters apart. They're, uh, it's family gatherings, hugging and 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 uh, intimate, in, intimate, more family intimacy or social intimacy. Guys playing poker in the basement. I know a friend, uh, a friend of a friend who got COVID that way. I know people who had friends over. They were playing billiards in the basement. That's how it got transmitted in that case. So, 
those at-home social activities are the highest vector of transmission. And we're just telling people, I'm sorry, that's it, just for the time being, stop. Nobody in your house who's not um, a member of your immediate family, unless there's a, an urgent reason. Um, secondly, uh, we have um, set a maximum of 10 for outdoor social gatherings. Thirdly, uh, we have um, for, sent the high school kids home for online learning at, at, at home because, um, frank, not that schools are a significant vector of transmission, but uh, there's so much community spread now that a lot of teachers weren't able to come to work and our ability to deliver those services was, was being compromised. Uh, and uh, a, a number of other measures, but uh, well, we've put retail stores at 25% capacity, but I believe we've done this in, an, in a smart way. In the spring, we did it in a dumb way. We made an arbitrary designation between essential and non-essential businesses. Of course, every business is essential for the family that owns it and the people that work there. And I, I just cannot believe that we set up a situation where we were sending uh, everybody to big U.S.-owned box stores, um, especially right now, just before Christmas, 25% capacity, safe operation, mask wearing. We've also said masks are mandatory at workplaces in Calgary and Edmonton, where 83% of the cases are. So those are some of the measures we think okay. are very strong. Uh, we'll monitor them. If we have to go further later, we will. Premier, Intergovernmental Affairs Minister federally, um, Romeo LeBlanc, on Global News West Block with Mercedes Stevenson. Oh, excuse me, Dominic LeBlanc. I'm sorry? Oh, I know, Dominic LeBlanc. Yeah, of course. I'm sorry, Dominic LeBlanc. On on the West Block, airing today, said that the first 6 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines, enough for 3 million Canadians, will begin to arrive early January. Monsieur LeBlanc also said the federal government is working with the premiers to assure there's a very, very effective logistics system to roll out these vaccines. He went on to assure that vaccines would begin to arrive in Canada literally within a matter of weeks, early January at the latest, end quote. Is that your understanding, Premier? Is that what Justin Trudeau has shared with you and your fellow Premiers? Did he offer a, a timeline in your conference call on Thursday? Yes, the timeline was that we would receive that, our, uh, we we inferred a per capita allocation of those 6 million doses by uh, March, the end of March. So through the first quarter, gradually, they were unable to give us a more precise distribution schedule. And I think that's understandable, uh, given uh, the still early state of, of vaccine production and distribution. Um, so that would r- remember that 6 million doses represents 3 million people because right. all of these vaccines apparently are, are a two-dose uh, protocol. So that would represent, we estimate, um, about uh, 350,000 Albertans. And we're working on our um, vaccine prioritization and uh, distribution uh, uh, planning. Uh, obviously, we would be starting with the most vulnerable, um, such as uh, uh, seniors in nursing homes, as well as healthcare workers. Uh, and we, you know, obviously, that we're desperately impatient to get a hold of the, uh, these vaccines. Um, and uh, we certainly hope the federal government uh, carry, you know, keeps up to its commitment. So uh, I want to go back to something I asked you at the beginning. I forgot about it, and I want to come back to it, and that is the issue of mandatory vaccination. You've been very clear on that. Yeah, um, I've been very clear that there will be no mandatory vaccination in Alberta. In fact, we will be amending Alberta's Public Health Act in the next sitting of our legislature in February to eliminate a power for, quotes, mandatory inoculation or vaccination that has been in the law here since, we believe, 1910. 
We do not know of a case where it has been used. Uh, our chief medical officer for health, um, appearing before a legislature committee in September, or I think in August, uh, confirmed that she could not see a scenario where we would make it mandatory and she would support, um, in, in order to remove any confusion, uh, amending the legislation to eliminate the power of compulsion. Um, obviously, right, we will be strongly encouraging as many people as possible to take the vaccine, but we're all better off if they do so. We can open up more quickly and recover um, for, the, for every additional person that takes that vaccine. Of course, we will only participate in distributing a vaccine that has been scientifically validated as safe and which has been ethically produced. Um, and I'll, I'll certainly be taking that vaccine and, and, and we'll do everything we can to encourage folks. But I cannot imagine in a free society like this us threatening to basically strap people down and inject them uh, with um, with a vaccine against their their objection. I, I think the idea is, is frankly ridiculous, and I I'm surprised to see that there are some people who actually believe the state authority should be used to force uh, uh, something on that. I'd like that against people's will. I think that that would just it's a prima facie violation of the constitutionally protected security of the person. Sixty percent of hotel executives fear going out of business by Christmas, and the president and CEO of the Hotel Association of Canada, Susie Greinall, uh, said, and here's the quote that I have, I'll read it to you, we could lose at least half of this industry. When you consider what hotels, what the hospitality industry delivers to Canada as a whole, that's uh, that's a very concerning statement. You think about a hotel in, in any community, there's a satellite economy that surrounds that hotel, and that satellite economy is dependent on the presence of the hotel. Susie Greinall is the president and CEO of the Hotel Association of Canada. She joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Greinall, 60% of hotel executives fear, is that correct, fear they may go out of business by Christmas? Yes, thank you for having me on the show. Um, sadly, that is that is correct, and it's, it's actually not hotel executives. Who owns these hotels are actually people in the community. These are small and predominantly small and medium-sized business owners. Um, and so that's who owns the local hotel. When you look at a hotel and you see a brand on it, like a recognizable Marriott or, Marriott or a Hilton, they don't actually own that property. It's somebody in that community. And what's happened mm-hmm. is that these business owners have been sitting virtually empty with, with almost zero revenue coming in the door for six, seven months now. And they're running out of options for how they can pay the bills because they've used up their life savings. Um, and now they're at this TSN turning point, which is really what do they shut their doors or do they keep their doors open as we as we look to what is going to be another potentially six to eight months before this industry starts to see a recovery. And if I have the number correctly and I found it on your website, so um, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but. $21.9 billion is, is contributed to the overall economy by the hotel sector? Yeah, that's correct. So that's, you know, $10 billion in tax to all levels of government. It's 300,000 people employed. And you're quite right. At the beginning, you mentioned about this ecosystem. You know, if you think of the food, the supplies, the TV, the AV, the soap, the gyms, the pools, like all the different businesses that would be supplying to the hotel industry. But then if you also think about what the hotel industry does as sort of an anchor in the community. If you have to travel, whether it's for work or whether it's for, uh, you know, to see family or you're attending an event, a concert, a festival, an event, a, a major uh, convention, 
you go there for a purpose, but you need a place to stay. And if you're a rural and remote region in this country and, you know, you're an essential worker and you're going, you're going to offer an essential service to a, a rural and remote region, if all three of the hotels in that area close down, um, this, is, this is the kind of critical infrastructure breakdown we are now seeing. And, and our last survey that was just, um, just closed at noon on Friday said that 70, 70% said they won't make it until the summer. 70%. That's 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 stunning, and and yeah. when you consider that there is, uh, I, I would imagine that in any sector there's a domino effect. So if one major contributor to the national economy falters badly, almost invariably another sector is going to be affected by it, and it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, does it not? Yes. Yep. I mean, this, this is, we're called, you know, critical infrastructure for, for a reason. And, uh, if we do start to see this breakdown, what it means is that the post recovery period for Canadians looks really different. It means that vacations are going to look different. It means that, you know, you're not going to have a place to stay if you need to attend your cousin's wedding. It means your cousin's wedding may not take place at all because maybe there's no facilities to even have them. Uh, means hockey tournaments won't happen in communities. And we're not talking about a small amount of attrition here. We're talking about almost an entire sector going under. And that is going to impact the lives of Canadians. When we wake up post-pandemic, the world is going to look really different. Are there countermeasures or a forward-looking strategy the Hotel Association is recommending to all levels of government? And then part B of that question is, are governments listening? Yes, absolutely. We, we have made uh, countless recommendations to government. And I will say, so, so we operate at the federal level, um, dealing with the federal government, and they have been very responsive. They've been very, got an open and engaged dialogue with them. Um, they've made amendments to the broad-based programs that have been announced so far to ensure that we had access. But what they have not yet come out with is a tailored program for the hardest hit sectors. Their broad-based programs are strong, and they've been able to clot some of the bleeding, but we're in this special category. The ongoing health restrictions around um, mass gatherings and travel bans mean that we, we are not going, uh, you know, our core business is not going to be able to function from the beginning to the end of this pandemic. That's what puts us in this special category. And we do need to see tailored support from government. And we're looking for three things. What we need is relief. Because when you have these infrastructures sitting empty with no revenue coming in, you've got to be able to pay your fixed costs. So we're looking for fixed cost relief from the government, more fixed costs. They provided some. There needs to be more for the hardest hit so that we can pay the bills. Number two, we're looking for a functional loan program. Right now, the banks are not lending to this sector. They've decided that we're too risky. And so if you, if you can't cover the bills through revenue, you've got to cover it through, cover it through either government relief or debt. And right now, debt's not even an option. So that needs to be fixed urgently. And number three, if they increase the wage subsidy, it would allow us to keep more of our employees uh, connected to the workplace so that hopefully by this summer, if we do start to see a bit of a recovery, we've got as many people employed in the, in the, uh, in the industry as possible, and we can have uh, some, a better shot at a more meaningful recovery. So uh, we can say with accuracy that uh, the hotel sector and again the i really believe and as, as you substantiated there is a, there are satellite economies that are built around each hotel in, in in every community 
that hotel sector that you represent has been bleeding money for six to eight months now and has had occupancy rates, I've read somewhere 10%, 15%, maybe 20%, at times lower than that. Can't survive on that. Uh, So it's been bleeding money, and we're now at the stage where maybe half of the, correct me when I say something wrong here, where half of the sector may be closed by Christmas? Yeah, so that statistic, um, we ran that survey in September. And that survey was prior to the government announcing its um, its fixed cost relief. So I hope the numbers are not that high. I think they won't be. I think we'll be able to pull that down a little bit. But we have already seen loss. We will continue to see loss every day until we've got a full strategy in place. I'm hoping that it's not that bad because we are really hoping that on, well, today's Sunday, tomorrow, uh, the speech from the, or rather the fall economic statement is going to be uh, released by the federal government, and we are hopeful that there's going to be a deeper level of support. Uh, But the risk is there. It it is absolutely there, and, and Canadians should be concerned about it. General Rick Hillier, former Chief of Defense Staff, will chair the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine for the province of Ontario, uh, announced Premier Ford. We talked to the general a few weeks ago about Remembrance Day and a special project that uh, he endorses. General, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Roy, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Can, we st- can I ask you, first of all, what will your role be, or, or what is your role on behalf of the Ford government? Well, to lead the task force that's going to complete the design of the plan to receive the vaccines that come to Ontario, to handle them, to store them as necessary, and then to move them onwards to the medical teams that we will help ensure are are ready for them to vaccinate people, to track what we're doing so we don't waste any vaccines. And then to, as we're doing all of that, and even before, uh, to be able to tell the people of Ontario absolutely everything that's going on to the best detail that we can so so they can, uh, you know, live in uh, knowledge of what's happening around them. And so my job is to lead the task force of men and women uh, that's going to do that. What are some of the uh, most quickly identifiable challenges that you're going to be facing? Well, the challenges are many. I guess first is that we we have precious little information uh, about the vaccines, when they will arrive, how many we will get, uh, and, and the detail of how we're going to handle them. I mean, we know some things, and we understand there are some challenges in getting that information, but I think that is the number one issue right now because it's really difficult to plan unless you know you know when you're going to receive and how many you're going to receive and and from which sort of manufacturer you know whether it's Pfizer whether it's Moderna or and down the road some other manufacturers lack of information about the actual vaccine itself is what's crucial right now and that really does restrict planning but in the military we always believe you plan for the worst case and and, and uh, then you can do anything else so we're planning for you know we get a whole vast amount on the 1st of January. We want to be ready for it. So we've said to the team of men and women, many of whom have been working on this issue for months and months, and they're incredible people. We want to be ready for 31 December, and anything comes after that, we're good to go. If something happens before that, we want to be ready to 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 respond, obviously. That means so we've got to be ready by Christmas Eve, and that means we want to do a lot of work over the next two weeks to put the finishing touches on the plan. The people are going to do it, tie all the loose ends together and be ready to rock and roll as the people of Ontario need us. Is there interprovincial communication and cooperation on this as well? 
Well, yeah, there is. And I know, you know, I talked to the premier on Friday and he's, you know, he's talked to lots of his, uh, his uh, colleagues who are premiers across the country. Obviously, some of that is through the federal mechanism at, at the first minister's calls or whichever those things are. And, and, and so, yes, there's there. There is, uh, there is discussions I know that go on amongst the deputy ministers and other senior uh, members of the public service in each of the provinces. And I've reached out to uh, some of my former battle buddies and, and military colleagues who are now in positions in other provinces and engaged in either the fight against COVID-19 or specifically the vaccine rollout and, and just been reaching out to them and talking to them and saying, hey, what's happened? What have you learned so far? What do you know? So, yeah, there is cooperation. And I think that cooperation will grow as we get more information actually on the vaccine, uh, the vaccine itself. And then when we start to get some precise dates and the numbers that will roll out, I think the cooperation will grow even more then. General Hillier, um, there's a lot of talk about prioritizing who will, in fact, receive the vaccine. What groups within our society? Will it be demographics? Will it be healthcare professionals? Will it be people who have uh, underlying conditions? Are you working on that as well? I'm, I'm, we're walking through that right now. Of course, that will be the government of Ontario's decision, not mine, and, and that's exactly as it should be. We're going to be we're going to be shaped, of course, by federal guidelines that are already sort of uh, being communicated as to how the federal government of Canada uh, believes that the prioritization should go. I don't think there's going to be any doubt, uh, Roy, that you know those most vulnerable, and particularly those most vulnerable in the red zones or hot zones or the most dangerous zones. So vulnerable and hot and higher risk because you're in a region where COVID-19 numbers are way high. I think, I don't think there's going to be any disagreement that that will be the number one priority followed by number two of, of those who are in contact with people who probably have or could have COVID-19 and therefore the risk of catching it yourself and then be retransmitting it to others is high. And that would mean the healthcare workers. And after that we'll work through, but it'll depend on, you know, when those viruses, uh, when the vaccines arrive and what numbers they arrive at. So, I don't think there's any doubt that those first two will will be the number one and number two priority, uh, and, and that's what we'll get at first. Okay, General, we have about a minute and a half. Can can we just do a little, do a little segue here and go back to what we talked about with the Bruce Monker a couple of weeks ago and the special project that you're endorsing or and involved with? Just remind us, please, what that's about. Oh my goodness, it's uh, we call it Valor in the Presence of the Enemy. So go on and look on the Facebook site or or Twitter or YouTube, Valor in the Presence of the Enemy. We want to tell the story of Canadian Canadian heroes. We want to have a two-hour production that's a pilot for continuing. And in that two-hour production for next year, we want to tell the story of 10 Star of Military Valor winners. That's the second highest award that Canada can bestow upon somebody for courage and, and incredible actions in the face of the enemy. And we want to tell their stories and, and maybe just challenge Canadians to weigh in and say, does not one or two of those maybe actually deserve the Victoria Cross, the Canadian Victoria Cross, which has never been awarded since we adopted it in 1992. And we think those stories are compelling. And no matter whether Canadians weigh in and say that or not, they will be inspired by the stories uh, of those incredible individuals. And then we want to go on and tell stories you know, on a routine, regular basis, online, and, and uh, you know, using a, something like CBC, CTV, History Channel, or whichever one would see fit to produce our show and help us produce our show and tell Canadians the stories of those incredible heroes, which should inspire us right now as we are in the right. war against COVID-19. Last weekend, when we spoke with Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, president and CEO, Dan's going to be back on the show shortly. 
We had a call from uh, Tracy, who was calling us from Calgary. And uh, Tracy talked about having had a business, a small business, for a long period of time in the city, and then having retooled and started a new business. But because, well, let me have Tracy join us and uh, and talk to us. Tracy Johnson joins us from Bitter Sisters Brewing Company in Calgary. Tracy, when you sent me the email to follow up on your call uh, on Sunday, I recognized your story right away. And it really is a story that we all need to hear because we keep hearing about new business owners falling through the cracks and those stories we've done. But here you are with a proven track record as a small business person, retooling, and the crack opens up for you to fall into too. And right. nobody com- nobody communicates with you. So just please uh, remind everybody what your story is. Um, okay. Well, my sister and I have been in business for 22 years. We've had a variety of businesses. But uh, early in 2019, we decided after such a long period of time, it was uh, we really needed to retool and sort of come up with some new ideas as we were getting a bit stale. And we decided, because we had a large building we were in, we decided that the best idea was to open up a craft brewery and brew pub. So that's what we did. And then um, so a lot of planning went into it, and we officially closed on July 15th. And it took, of course, went, of course, over budget and over time, as these things always do. So we ended up opening on February 14th uh, of, sorry, of 2019, sorry. And, no, of 2020. Jeez. And um, anyways, we were then, we had a wonderful month. We had an absolutely stunning month. We were ecstatic with the response we had. And then 32 days later, we were told to shut down because of the COVID-19. And and you spent a lot of money, well well over a million dollars. Well over a million dollars to get things done and set up the way you wanted. And you opened with this new business, your Bitter Sisters Brewing Company, on the fourteenth of February, which has some sort of significance. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, weird timing. <laughs> the <laughs> older you get, the older you get. The older you get, the more you forget those things. Yeah. But but anyway, 14th of February, you opened up. And uh, so 30 days was great, and then or 32 days, and then they told you to shut down because of COVID. And you're stuck with all the expenses. And then what happened? And then we were allowed to open on May 25th. So we continued to pay our expenses for those months. We were allowed to open, of course, with the new COVID restrictions. But because it was patio season or very close to it, um, I think the patio, like many businesses, really saved our hide in the summer. So that was fine. We, we didn't need any kind of government anything. We didn't ask for anything. And then all of a sudden, the patio closed. The cold weather hit. October, our sales just absolutely plummeted. And then the COVID cases got worse. And now the sales are probably down to about 75% of what they were before, which pretty much makes it impossible for us to um, meet our expenses at this point. So um, you're just not making enough money to keep sustained business. No. Just not going to happen. Plus, you've got that million dollars that you spent for renovating and getting your new business ready. Yeah, which ironically, we have a federally backed $275,000 loan. Oh, no so kidding. it's actually uh, insured by the federal government. So if we okay. have to go under, then that will actually be on the taxpayer's hook, which would make me feel terrible. Oh, they, they don't care. There's more where that came from, no. Tracy. You know that. I don't mean so I to guess- be cynical, but part of me part of me has become, I think I have a permanent cynical synapse in my brain. 
um, because of what I've seen and heard and, and experienced. Now, so you get in touch with everybody, everybody, federal, provincial. You get in touch with everybody. Everybody. Who replied? Um, everybody replied. The only response I didn't get. Well, I did get a response on Friday afternoon was Minister Nig, the Minister Responsible for Small Business. And I did speak to their office briefly, and they did they were very sympathetic. But they did say they're not responsible for the legislation, and they're not responsible for the running of the program and how it's run. Yeah, so I have an email so, from you here yeah. that said, they said it's not their job to figure out how the public service distributes money to small businesses. Right. And then you said, I pointed out that every single person I've spoken to has said there has to be legislation for exceptions, and that Justin Trudeau said he would address this on May 14th, 2019. Yes. Um, I also pointed out that every person I've spoken to has said it has to come from her office, her being the minister for small business. Yes. So then they said, no, that's not the case. So then you let them know you're going to be on the air with me, right? Yeah. Well, that's actually when they called me. That's when they called when you. I, when I emailed them to say I was going to be on your show, that's when they actually called me. Yeah. So here, may I read the email that you got? Sure, sure. Okay. So you got nothing from them. It's not their responsibility. Go away, Tracy. Then you tell them you're going to be on the air with me. And then, magically, this arrives. Hello, Tracy. Thanks for reaching out to the minister's office and apologies for the delay in getting back to you. Would you be willing to jump on a call to chat? I'm sorry to hear about what sounds like a very difficult situation for you and your business. Let me know if there's a time that works for you today. So, magically... Because you tell them you're going to be on the air with me. And, and that was my 12th to email. What's that? That was my 12th email I sent. That was your 12th email. So, and, and Dan Kelly's going to be on in a few minutes' time. I know Dan's listening right now. He's probably smiling. Mm -hmm. So, But it's really sad, isn't it, that, that it takes you telling them you're going to be speaking on a national radio program for them to actually say, oh, maybe we'd better talk to her. Yes. And, Roy, I just have to say, you know, I see the advertisement for the wage subsidies. I see the advertisements. I see how much the government wants to help small business and save jobs. And at this point, I mean, I've had employees there for years and years and years. And because I can't get any subsidies, I'm laying people off. They can't pay their rent. I mean, it's, it's making me physically sick because we're like a family there. And I just, like, I just want to scream when I see all this stuff coming at me saying, we want to help small business. We want to help small business. Yeah. It's sad. It's, it's worse than sad. And this is the point that's been made by Dan many times. You're making it now. We've heard it from others. We've heard it from people who are in, 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 fallen through the cracks and who are saying, look, I can't bring myself to fire my employees. So I'm paying them off my credit card. Yeah. And, oh, and it becomes always last resort. So, so what happens now, Tracy? Did you ever, did you have that call with that person from the minister's office? I did that. Sorry. That's when she was telling me that it, you know, she would she would ask around and see if there was anything, but basically they don't do the legislation, they don't run the programs, and it's pretty much out of their hands. And I responded saying, I have been told that the legislation must come from a minister or an MP, mm -hmm. and she just said that's not really what they do. So I'm just kind of at the end of the road here. So, so, so we'll help people just as long as it's not you, Tracy. Yeah. Not unless you fit right into this little box. So, so what happens to you now? How, how long can you and your sister hold out? Because uh, it, you're heading into winter. Well, the winter is, yeah. Normally this would be, like, we had even had some Christmas parties booked. But, of course, everything's been canceled because of right. COVID. So, and, and 
like, thank goodness for Jason Kenny and Tyler Shandro and the fact that they have kept us open. But there is so few, I mean, the rules are so strict and there's so few people going out that it, it's not really going to help very much. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, we're just going to keep struggling and shutting staff down as much as we can, which I absolutely hate to do, especially before Christmas. But it's either that or just go under completely. Yeah. Well, I'm very sorry for you. I'm sorry for all small business people, owners who oh, are struggling as you are. Uh, Dan says 158,000 businesses are in peril, maybe up to 225,000. It's it's one thing to make promises; it's another to uh, to 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 follow up on them. And for, I just find it really reprehensible that uh, a federal minister's office would just say to you, "Not my job, somebody yeah. else's." Not my right, job. Like I just and I want to point out the fact that you know there is this divisiveness going on between the public sector and the private sector and everything else. But I just want to say that, like, it truly is through no fault of any small businesses that they have been shut down. And we would have been absolutely perfectly fine if this hadn't happened to us. And I'm not saying, like, we shouldn't take some responsibility for it and run as, you know, as streamlined as possible. But the fact of the matter is, is that if I lose my life savings, it is really through no fault of our own at all or any other small businesses out there. No, it isn't. No, it is not. Um, I wish I had a magic button push to push for you. I really do. Me too. (laughs) I really wish I did. But I know the CFIB is working really, really hard on this. And uh, and Dan is a wonderful guy who works so hard. And uh, let's you and I stay in touch. Please, please keep me aware of what you hear back. Uh, They will be aware that you've spoken to us. And uh, let me know if, let me know either way, if they get back to you or they don't, um, because you need help. Small business needs help, and ultimately that helps our communities across the country. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.